Well, good morning again. I have so many distinct memories of worship, of church, from when I was a kid. Uh, when I was a kid, my family lived in central Wisconsin, and we attended this really old school church in downtown Wausau. It had one of those like A-frame roofs that was all wood. And the whole like sanctuary was just wood and stone and these hard wood pews. And, you know, if the church doors were open, we were there. I mean, Sunday mornings, absolutely, for both the worship hour, but of course also the Sunday school hour. And Wednesday nights was always Awana. And then there were the weekly Sunday night services, followed by the weekly Sunday night service post-spanking because I just could not <laughs> control myself as a little kid and just couldn't get the wiggles all out. But one of the things I remember so distinctly from those services was this song, and I've talked about this before at ACC. It was a song called, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I can, even in saying that, I can almost remember kind of the warbly-voiced pastor leading us in singing this song, accompanied only by the organ and... And I can almost remember kind of the smells of the sanctuary, the, the feel of the room, the, the cold wood against my back as we sat in these pews for what felt like hours. And he's saying these words over us and with us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's a song that actually has a really rich history that we've shared before in these services. But for years, I kind of dismissed it as corny or simplistic or escapist. But over these last few weeks, it's a song that's come to mind several times. I remember this week sitting on the couch and my wife and I were watching Governor Walz as he issued this executive decree uh, to stay at home and as we were watching and listening to his words and to the, the news feed on this, my wife just turned to me and said, this all just feels like such a strange dream. During this time in our world, the things of earth don't feel strangely dim. They feel strangely vivid, strangely real, bizarrely vivid. We see these images and they look like something we'd see in a movie. You know, these images of people in hazmat suits and hospitals that are being overrun and so much fear in the world right now. It feels like Hollywood, but it's not. It's, it's real, even if it feels unreal. And so during this time of crisis, it's natural for us to turn our eyes to the news sources. Every morning when I wake up, my first impulse is to reach for the nightstand and to reach for my phone and to start Googling COVID-19 Minnesota to get the latest news. During this time of crisis, it's natural for us to turn our eyes to the experts, to say, what is the CDC saying this day? What does the Department of Health say today? What are the politicians say today? During this time of crisis, it's, it's natural. It's our tendency to turn our eyes to Netflix, to try to escape to a different reality, if only for an hour, to try to forget, if only for an hour, the bizarre and scary realities that we're facing in our everyday lives now. I mean, none of that is bad, necessarily. The truth is we need to know what's happening. We need to know what the experts are saying. We sometimes even need to turn our brains off and to laugh a little bit. But in the midst of that, we also need to be reminded 
that our hope, that our security, that our future can be found in none of those sources. We need to be reminded, and there's a place to write this in your notes, that we are invited to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look fully at him. Before March turned into a season of crisis, it was a season in the church calendar that was called Lent. And it is still Lent, as Chris already said. And in this season, we've been invited to turn our eyes upon Jesus in this series that we're calling The Way. Chris invited us throughout this series to be reading through the Gospels as they tell the story of Jesus, so that we could look at the teachings of Jesus, certainly, but also to look at the, the life of Jesus, the way of Jesus. How did he live? Where did he draw his strength from? Where were his truths anchored? How did Jesus weather the storms of his life that surrounded him throughout his ministry, throughout his life? As you read through these gospel accounts, you see that at the very core of Jesus' life was his reverence for, his integration of, his embodiment of Scripture in every aspect of his life. It's remarkable that as you go through these Gospels, you see just how anchored Jesus is in Scripture. His teaching is from Scripture. His, his meditation is on Scripture. Most of his dialogue comes directly from Scripture. His identity comes from Scripture. Scripture was absolutely central to the life, ministry, and mission of Christ. There's a place to write this in your notes. Scripture is how Christ understood himself and how he presented himself to the world to be understood. It's remarkable as you read through these accounts how often Jesus quotes the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. In Luke 4, for instance, which is sort of the inaugural address that Jesus gives at the start of his ministry. It's his first time preaching in the synagogue, his hometown synagogue. And he gets up and and here's how the story goes. Reading from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. Here we go. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. As the time of the Lord's favor has come, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And that's his whole sermon. I mean, Jesus maybe waited 30 years of his life for a chance to finally preach in the synagogue. And he gets up and all he does is he reads this passage from Isaiah and then sits down. He says, he takes this Old Testament prophecy that his Jewish audience would have known their whole lives, heard their whole lives, recited their whole lives, learned as children. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance for us. Everyone in the room knew it. And he says, that verse, that prophecy is fulfilled today in me. I am the me in that story. And Jesus does this throughout his ministry as you read through these gospel accounts. He quotes these books from from the Pentateuch, all the books of the Pentateuch, and and the books of the prophets. He quotes them and he makes them. He, He illustrates how those things all are fulfilled in him, in his life, and in his way, in his ministry. 
Jesus quoted lots of the Old Testament books. But you know what book he quoted the most? More than the book of Isaiah, more than the, from the book of Exodus? The book that Jesus quoted the most, that he applied to his life the most, was the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was absolutely central to how Jesus understood himself and presented himself to the world to be understood. Multiple times in the gospel, Jesus outwits the Pharisees by quoting the book of Psalms back to them. In John 10, when the Jews wanted to stone Jesus for claiming to be God, Jesus responds to them by quoting from Psalm 82. Then later when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he reminds them of this story that was so central. He reminds them of, of how God brought them out of Egypt, that he freed them from slavery, and that while they were in the desert, God provided for them by making manna fall from heaven. And then he says, that bread that God provided, I am now that bread, that bread of life that God is providing for you. And to illustrate this point, Jesus quotes for them, not from a story, but from a psalm. Reading in John chapter 6, verse 31, the scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see that little G that's at the end of the verse? That's a footnote that lets us know that Jesus is quoting Psalm 78, which reads, He rained down manna from them for them to eat, and he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus is reminding them of this story that they all knew. But it's interesting to me that the vehicle that he uses to call about that memory isn't from the narrative. It isn't from the other books. It's from a praise song that recounts that story. A song that recounts this story that was so central to them. Why? Why use a song? Why not use the story? Why not use the law? Why, why does Jesus throughout these stories insist on using these songs, these psalms? They're just songs. They're just poetry, right? I think songs evoke memories. Songs evoke emotions just like they did for me when I was a kid sitting in that pew. And these psalms, they were the songbook of Israel. Songs that recounted the goodness of God, the provision of God, the best of times, but also the worst of times. Psalms like, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For those sorts of moments, these songs existed. Songs that spoke from the heart and soul of mankind, but reveal the heart and soul of God. Songs that were written during times of great celebration, but also in times of great longing and pain. Written in times when the future was unknown and the prospects didn't look good. Songs that have served God's people through years of abundance and joy, but also through years of exile and want and war and famine and brokenness. Songs that tied Israel to the ones that had come before them, reminding them of their history with God. Songs that call the people to come with songs of joy, but also invite us to come to God in our pain and in our questions and with our doubts and with our fears, to honestly cry out to God and ask, Why? How long, O oh Lord, will you wait? Songs of praise, but also songs of lament. 
songs of pain, songs that were written 3,000 years ago, but still speak of the aches and the longings and the desires that are incredibly poignant in our world today. I think Jesus time and time again references and refers to and ties these psalms to himself for a very important reason. The psalms are given to us so we can know God better in every moment, in every situation, in every circumstance. Time and time again, Jesus takes these psalms and applies them to himself, saying, this is about me. These songs are ultimately about me. This is how Jesus understood himself and presented himself to the world and is presenting himself to us. I think there's a lesson in that for us, an invitation in that for us. If we want to understand Christ more, if we want to experience Christ more in the midst of today's calamity, then Christ is pointing us to the Psalms, to these songs. And Jesus quotes these songs throughout all of the stories and sometimes in the most unexpected places. For instance, in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, sometimes, something like nine times, Jesus quotes the Psalms, taking these statements that we're all familiar with, the blessed are the, and actually basically restating Psalms. Uh, we tend to take these as sort of standalone verses, but to Jesus' Jewish audience, they would have been obvious allusions to the Psalms. Throughout the Gospel accounts, there's a clear link between Jesus and the Psalms, and nowhere is that link more clear than in the Gospel stories of the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth before his crucifixion. In Matthew's account, for instance, of the triumphal entry Jesus rides into town as part of a procession. He's riding on a donkey. As he comes through the gates, the crowds are surrounding him and they're crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna literally means God save us. The people here are quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 25 and 26 Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The people were quoting psalms and applying them to Jesus, just as we see Jesus doing throughout all of these stories. When the religious leaders, of course, hear this, they're, they're furious and they came to Jesus. It says, they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Jesus, in response to their fury and their indignation, quotes back to them their very own scriptures. Psalm 8, which reads, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. But what's interesting, at least for me, is that Jesus is saying so much more than these few words that he's speaking. You see, Jesus was a rabbi and a very common rabbinical technique of the day, which has now come to be known as Ramez, was that a rabbi would essentially speak the opening line, a small portion of a passage, confident that his audience knew the rest of that passage and would fill in the rest of the information. They would fill in the full meaning inferred 
by that one phrase. It's sort of like if I say, uh, find a penny, pick it up, virtually all of you can fill in the rest. All day long, you'll have good luck. Or, or this one, um, if I say to you, my country tis of thee, most of you will recognize the quote and can fill in, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. In fact, not only will the words come to you, but I'm guessing for some of you, even the melody comes to you. Even the, the emotional connection you have to that song, good or bad, comes to you in an instant. You can fill in the rest of the meaning. Well, here Jesus appears to be employing this remez technique. He, he quoted verse 2 of Psalm 8, but he knows that they will fill in the next verses. So what do the next verses say? Let's go back to Psalm 8, verse 2. You have taught the children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. That's the message that they heard in these words. And, and that's why it's then obvious why they get so angry with Jesus in response. Basically, he's telling, he's calling them enemies of God. He's saying that the children are to pray so that they might silence those who oppose God. Jesus here, like in so many places, takes these psalms and says, these are about me. He applies them to himself. The psalms are all over these Holy Week accounts. Perhaps most famously, in the last words that Jesus spoke as he was on the cross, Jesus, hanging in agony and humiliation, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words that are confusing, perhaps. Discouraging, perhaps. Words around which a great deal of commentary has been made. I mean, did God really, did the Father really forsake the Son, leaving Jesus hanging there, turning his face and forsaking him? Was Jesus really left to wonder why God had abandoned him in this moment of greatest need? Here, in this desperate moment when Jesus is dying in front of a crowd, a crowd that is made up of his followers and his friends and his disciples and his mother, but a crowd that is also made up of religious leaders and those who appointed him and the people that hated him, the people that were there to celebrate his agony, to celebrate his humiliation and death. And in this moment, Jesus, the rabbi, employs that rabbinic technique of remez, using the opening phrase of a psalm that every Jewish member of his audience would have known by heart, would have memorized as children, would have heard sung and taught in synagogue their entire lives. A song that would have instantly sprung to mind, even the melody perhaps, even the emotional connections they had to the, experience, the experiences of their lives, even the personal history that they might have had with this particular song. When Jesus speaks these words, he's saying so much more than, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting the opening line of Psalm 22, written centuries earlier by David, confident that his disciples, his followers, and even all those religious leaders who hated them would have known what comes next, the deeper meaning of his words. Perhaps today you're here and you're asking that question. You're feeling 
forsaken. You're asking the question, why have you left us, God, to this fate, to this future that we don't know, to this feeling of fear and hopelessness in this moment? Let's look at the rest of Psalm 22. Let's see more, an overview of the things that Jesus is actually speaking in this darkest moment of history. Hear the pain and the anguish of his betrayal. Hear the desperation of his situation. Hear even his pleas for help in the situation. But hear also his anchored hope in the midst of this storm. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But then he goes on. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They've divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But then he ends by saying these words. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all who hear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All of the families of the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him all who are mortal. All whose lives will end as dust. And then there's a hope for a future. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Everything that God has accomplished. They will be reminded. You see, Jesus is quoting this familiar psalm and applying it once again to himself, saying, this is me. This is my story. But this is not defeat. This is not divine abandonment. What Jesus is saying and claiming and proclaiming in this darkest moment of history is victory. It's praise. It's celebration. Even in this moment of darkness, a celebration of all that God has done and all that God will do. 
It's an invitation to that crowd before him, but it's an invitation to us as, as well. An invitation to return to God. A call to remember. A call to repentance. A call to worship. Up until this very last moment of his life, his last breath, Jesus is drawing on the Psalms of his people. Because the Psalms were central to the life ministry, and mission of Christ. Are the Psalms central to our lives? As we walk through this time as a nation, as a church, as a world, as we look forward now to to weeks, perhaps, months of isolation, of an unknown future, as we anticipate a future that will undoubtedly suffer as a result of this time and of this season, what strength do we call on in this moment? What well do we draw from? What anchors us in this storm? As the things of earth grow strangely vivid and scary for us, how do we turn our eyes upon Jesus? We've called this series The Way, looking at the way of Jesus. And in the way of Jesus, the Psalms played a central role. As he faced opposition, as he faced trials, as he faced even his death, Jesus turned to the Psalms. We see this also in the early church. They also, as they faced those same things, followed the way of Jesus and turned to the Psalms. The Psalms have been the backbone of Christian worship for 2,000 years. During this season of crisis, I think we have an invitation to turn our eyes upon Jesus by doing what the people of God have done for thousands of years. Turning our eyes to the Psalms of Jesus. I want to invite you and myself, all of us, starting tomorrow and each day of this unknown time that's ahead of us, whether it's days or weeks or months, to simply read through one psalm Perhaps first thing in the morning when you feel that impulse to pick up your phone and start Googling the latest news, the latest headlines. In that moment, recognize that impulse as an invitation to instead pause and to do what Christ did, to go to the Psalms. When you feel the anxiety begin to build to check your news feed and and mindlessly scroll through Facebook to see the latest updates and who's been impacted, first... Find a quiet place. And if your house is anything like my house right now, I know that's going to be hard to do. But find a quiet place and quiet yourself. In that moment, pause and ask God, speak to me. I will reveal my heart and my soul to you. Reveal your heart and soul to me. Oh God, ask God to speak to you through these ancient words that are still so relevant, so poignant in our lives, and then simply read through this psalm. I think in this season, when it can be so hard to even pray, to know what to pray, pray the psalms. In this season, where it could be so hard to praise, allow the words of the psalms to shape your devotion, to shape your worship, to be your words of praise in this season where where you might struggle 
to cry out to God, where, where maybe you're not comfortable, maybe it feels wrong to question God, to complain to God, to say, why God? Then allow these words to be your words to God, about God, and about you. This is our chance as the followers of God to cry out, to say, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know what? There's not a wrong way to do this exercise of reading through the Psalms. We're not going to take a test at the end. We're not going to check up on you. If you miss a day, simply pick up the next day where you left off. But in the season of Lent, and in this sort of season of national lament, of fear, of, of anxiety for so many, we invite you to go to this deep well of the Psalms. The Psalms are a deep reservoir, a resource. They were for Israel. They were for Jesus. They were for the early church. And they are for us if we will go there. Let me pray for us. Jesus, during this season where so much feels unsettled and unknown, where fear and anxiety so easily keep us up in the night, and fill our days with worry. God, will you remind us of these truths? Will you call to our minds the songs, the psalms that speak of your deliverance, that speak of your rescue, that speak of your heart in the midst of our fear? God, tie us to our history. Tie us to what you have done in the past so that we might live not shaken in every situation, but instead anchored to who you are, what you have done, and what you will do. We thank you for the example that you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ.